Welcome to the bite-sized edition of the Editor Roundtable podcast. Here on the Roundtable, we're dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the story grid method developed by Sean Coyne. In these episodes, we bring you some shorter solo articles and interviews on topics that interest us as writers. Hi, this is Kim Kessler, and today Anne Holly and I are exploring part two of the power of past and present with stories that include dual timelines, onstage events in the present and the past that together create a rich global story arc. So join us for a quick bite of writing insight starting right now. Today, we're going to be taking a closer look at the flashback form of the dual timeline stories. And for that, we're going to revisit a story that we looked at in season five, The Girl in the Book. Yeah, it was a good one. It's a good example. We have a fairly well-constructed story, I think we found some fault with it, that depends on two different timelines, a present and a past of the same character. Now, the story reveals the past through the present character's memories in the form of flashbacks. Both stories, past and present, have complete arcs, and you're going to see that this is a very important element. They're tied together by featuring the same protagonist whose antagonist from the past reappears in her present. And the antagonist's past actions, as we slowly learn, are what define the protagonist's whole current and rather dreary present. Okay, so let's zoom in for a closer look at where the flashbacks to the past show up across the story spine. In the beginning hook of The Girl in the Book, we have three flashbacks. The first I'm tagging as meets the antagonist. Alice is enduring one of her parents' parties and is introduced to Milan Doniker, who is our antagonist. Later within the scene, Milan barges into her room on accident and then shows interest in her writing. It's almost like the lovers meet scene. And it's important to point out that in this flashback, Alice is like 14 or 15 years old and Milan is like 40. Yes, exactly. So then the next one in the beginning hook is where the antagonist plays the hero. So Alice is out to dinner with her parents and Milan, and her parents are arguing, and you can tell they have a pretty toxic relationship, but Milan interjects with a funny little anecdote to cut the tension and to make Alice smile, sort of winning her over to his side. And then the final flashback of the beginning hook is where the antagonist gains her trust. Alice meets Milan for lunch. He asked her to meet him and he asks to read her short story and he praises her line writing and tells her that she's a writer. Throughout these three scenes, we see her kind of going from very stoic and it's like he's slowly but surely getting her to smile and getting her to open up to him. In the middle build, we have nine flashbacks, and I'm not going to make you listen to me go through all of them, but the details will be in the show notes. But one thing I want to point out is that in looking for these moments, you know, finding the flashbacks, I was able to sort of distill down each flashback into a title. So for example, the middle build breaks down like this. Antagonist is invited in. Antagonist plays the mentor. Antagonist shows increased interest. Antagonist advances and retreats. Protagonist is left unprotected. Antagonist advances and gaslights. Protagonist rebuffs the antagonist. The antagonist retaliates. And then the antagonist exploits in private. 
So again, that's the arc just for the middle build of these flashback scenes. And what I found is finding a, a title, like a kind of a way to abstractly summarize the name of the scene or like what's really going on, it helped me see the spine here. And so I just wanted to point that out as kind of a, a strange tool that I know we've used it here and there on the podcast. So just a shout out to going ahead and naming the scene that you're looking at to get down to what it's really about. Over this middle build with these nine flashbacks, the antagonist is basically continuing to gain entry. Invited in by the protagonist, plays the mentor, shows interest, and he's doing these things like he's advancing and then he's retreating. It's almost if he's like, oh, oh, that was inappropriate. I know better. But it's almost like it's a bait and switch almost in a weird way. Like yeah. it's this weird manip- – it's manipulating is really what totally. it is. Totally, yeah. One moment that I want to point out is the protagonist is left unprotected. So this is the one scene that Milan is not – present. Alice's father comes into her room and he's scolding her for leaving a sweater in the living room or whatever. And she's like, that's not mine. It must be Milan's. He was over here today helping me with my writing. And he's all surprised. And at first you think, oh, maybe he's going to be concerned. And he's like, yeah, he's been helping me with my writing. But then he says, oh, you couldn't have a better mentor. You're a lucky girl. And I expect great things from you. And then at this point, Alice is really sort of disturbed by that because in a way it was her asking for help. But her father just was so focused on prestige that he just doesn't even see it for what's going on. So this really leaves her unprotected. After that moment, the things with the antagonist progress quite rapidly, all the way to the final flashback of the middle build where the antagonist exploits the protagonist in private. And this is where Milan pressures Alice for details about what it was like hooking up with a boy and he seduces her into sexual assault. So it ends with this really awful scene and it totally aligns with her all is lost moment in the present. Okay, so let's look at the ending payoff. Here, we have two flashback moments, but I'm counting it as three scenes because the second flashback actually feels sort of like two separate moments, but they just didn't return to the present this time. This is taking place after that exploitation, and this is where the antagonist rebuffs the protagonist. So Alice is at dinner with her parents and Milan again, but this time he brings a date and he ignores Alice at the table. Next, we have the core event moment um, in the past where the antagonist exploits the protagonist in public. This time, Alice attends one of Milan's novel readings with her parents, and he reads from his latest novel that blatantly steals from Alice's own writing. It's things that she told him from their time together and including the moment of assault. Alice is very disturbed, and her mother asks her what's wrong, and Alice says, you know, I have something I have to tell you. So then rather than jumping back into the present, we go straight on to the next one, which is the protagonist is proven powerless. Alice is riding home in the limo with Milan and her parents. Her mother confronts the issue. Milan says it's not true. Alice's father believes him and says that Alice must have misinterpreted. It's just what she wanted to have happened. It's not real. Um, her mother, you know, questions this. Are you sure? Is this, or is it really not happen? But ultimately she accepts it and she doesn't push hard enough. Alice says, please stop the car, gets out and runs away. And that's the last that we see of Alice in the past. The remainder of the story takes place in the present. This makes for a total of 15 flashback scenes, and it creates a pretty solid story spine for that story in the past, which feels like most likely worldview disillusionment. I think when we studied it in season five, it felt like status pathetic at the time, but I can see worldview disillusionment as well. And we really see the effects of that play out throughout her entire course of the present. 
Yeah, and that playing out of disillusionment in the past into a more of a worldview education in the present is a remarkable use of two separate subgenres to tell a single story. It's really, really quite good. One of the things that this movie and some of the other movies that we looked at that use flashback got me thinking about is why would you use flashbacks? What are they? What are they for? How, how can you best use them? Should you use them? Etc. And the first question I want people to think about if you're thinking about using flashbacks is this, do the flashbacks form part of a coherent narrative of their own? Does that narrative influence the present story? In other words, have you written a complete story with a beginning, middle, and end in the past and decided which scenes of that past you can use to augment, explain, build narrative drive for your present story? If not, if you're just like dropping in little bits here and there, it may be that you're just painting a character portrait using random bits from the character's past. And if that's what you're doing, there's almost always a better way to show character than just having them remember or reflect on bits of past history. After all, think about this. Every character has a past that isn't in the story, unless you're talking about David Copperfield or Jane Eyre or something, which we probably aren't talking about. In a modern novel, the character's past history should be reflected implicitly, not explicitly, in their wants and needs, their present decisions, their actions, and their interactions with other characters. But suppose that your story really does require a big chunk of past history to make sense or to have the narrative drive it needs. Then there are four questions you need to answer if you're going to give that past history in the form of flashbacks. And those four questions go like this. What story purpose is served by revealing the backstory in flashbacks? Two, how would the story differ if we simply got the whole backstory in one piece instead of split up into flashbacks? Three, how would the story differ if we simply got that whole download of past history in some kind of present day exposition? And four, how would the story differ if we didn't get the backstory at all? Now, I'll try to answer all four here pretty quickly using the girl in the book as the example. The first one is, what story purpose is served by revealing Alice's backstory in flashback? For one thing, it's separated in time from the present by about 14 years, I think it was. And what happened in between isn't important to the story. So you have to bridge that distance somehow. Revealing the past story piecemeal and slowly solves the present mystery of why Alice's modern-day adult life is such a mess, while it also plays out and builds up the narrative drive of suspense about what really happened in the past. So that's the story purpose. It enhances the narrative drive. Number two is how would the story differ if we simply got the whole flashback, her whole past childhood teen story right up front? I think if you plug this whole story as a series of scenes at the beginning, it would act like a prologue. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with prologues, but let's talk about that a second, because the next thing you then would need would be some marker of the passage of time. In The Girl in the Book, that passage of time is 14 years, so they used two different actresses, and you could visually see the passage of time. In a written story, you could simply head the next chapter 14 years later. It's a little lazy, but you could do that. But if we got that whole past as a prologue, here's the problem. We wouldn't wonder at all why Alice is so screwed up in the present when we finally come to the present. We'd already know, right? No mystery there. The narrative drive of mystery would already be solved. And at the same time, since we've already seen the whole rather lurid past story, the suspense is already gone. What, what's going to happen to this poor young girl? 
And what we'd be left with then is this sort of dreary story of a young woman with trauma from childhood abuse facing the man we already know was her abuser. There's no narrative drive left. The mystery is solved. The suspense has been deflated. And of course, we can't really have dramatic irony, that third form of narrative drive either, because we at this point don't know anything that the protagonist doesn't already know. So the only sliver of narrative drive left is the slight suspense of wondering how she will in her adult life overcome this creative block and presumably somehow move past her trauma. If your prologue is an explanatory appendage stuck on, set in a different time and place than the main story, the best thing you can do would be to chop it off and distribute its key points within the actual storyline. And flashbacks are one way to do that. And this movie actually did that pretty well. But where to put them? And that's a big question. Here in this movie, each one is tied directly to a present scene. There are things in Alice's ordinary life that trigger PTSD-style flashbacks. She's sitting at a bar in the present day with this guy who has come back into her life, and she immediately flashes back to the first time they had this date together at a restaurant, very similar, sitting across from each other. And this makes sense since it's a story about trauma. It's a PTSD triggering of of actual psychological flashbacks. If I had to guess, I would say that the past story was carefully constructed and fully written. And then the writer wrote the present day scenes specifically to create those triggers for Alice to go back and flashback to relive key moments from her past. If your story isn't about trauma, then triggering moments might not work so well as they do in this story. Flashbacks in the cinematic sense are memories by definition. So you have to ask yourself, what is your point of view character remembering and why at this moment? We'll come back to that a little bit more. The third flashback question is how would the story differ if we simply got that whole download in some kind of exposition? Well, the word exposition should be a little bit of a red flag there. I can't think of a single way to get this particular backstory in without it being awkward, unnatural, or out of character. You could use devices that are similar to flashbacks, such as therapy sessions that might work in this case. It's even conceivable that the bones of the character's backstory, Alice's terrible backstory, could come out in some sort of natural-seeming dialogue at key points in the present story. Also, an omniscient narrator could tell it, but that's pretty old-fashioned these days. I mean, it might come back into style, but I wouldn't be counting on it. And the fourth question is, how would the story differ if Alice, in this case, didn't have this backstory at all, if it wasn't there? It seems like kind of a silly question, but there is a full story here without the backstory. It involves a young woman who, for some reason, is depressed and failing and creatively blocked. Now, to some extent, we do empathize with her, and we hope she'll find her writer's voice and retrieve her talent. Even if you leave in the part where her boss forces her to interact with her old abuser, it wouldn't necessarily need to have the whole backstory laid out. But again, that would be really a hell of a dreary story with a fairly unempathetic character. You could do it. You could leave small clues that maybe Alice was sexually abused in childhood. But then her eventual triumph in the story would have less impact since we never really saw or understood what kind of experiences she's triumphing over. So it's the commingling of the past story with the present story at key points that lends narrative drive to them both and engages the viewer's empathy. Okay, so what this makes me wonder is, you know, if we're saying that the story in the past needs its own arc, 
in something like The Fundamentals of Caring, where we have this sort of really similar format, but it's only one scene. You know, it's the scene of them unloading groceries and then the car isn't put into park and it runs over his son, right? So that's the scene. Like it's one scene and we see bits and pieces of it. And little by little, that entire scene is revealed throughout the course of the story. But even that, even a scene, it's still a full unit of story, right? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like it has the five essential elements. It it has a beginning, middle, and end. It's a complete little story, Mm -hmm. but it's that, you know, the fractal quality of stories where every unit of story contains those same elements in larger and smaller scales. So, yeah, I was thinking a lot about the fundamentals of caring and how that little tiny scene so carefully handled is, I mean, it's devastating. But also one of the differences is that the girl in the book is not a revelation story. We are mm-hmm. not waiting to find out the final devastating what really happened. What mm-hmm. really happened to this poor girl is revealed in a suspenseful, gradual manner, but it's not dropped on us all at once. Right. Okay. Whereas in Fundamentals of Caring, it was the unique single moment in that guy's life that completely ruined and changed his life. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. That's a really useful note to me personally, just like in the story that I'm trying to write myself, because it really does come down to the sort of fundamentals of caring moment, this really isolated, specific incident. But I think I want to give a little bit maybe before that, just to get a little context of maybe how that moment came to be, because it's not just an accident what happened the evening before and then what happens the morning of. You know, it might just be like little snippet, but it's just making my mind think of what is really necessary to show and what isn't. Remember too, in The Fundamentals of Caring, we get a lot of his general backstory implied in present day scenes. His wife serves him with divorce papers. He refuses to sign them. He's hiding out. And we're getting an idea of -hmm. his whole past, But in his particular case, that one terrible moment changed his life. That's a revelation kind of uh, impact. Okay, that's useful too. So this is all good. See, this is why I want to drill with these because I want to get to the bottom of this, you know? It feels really important. And I had a lot of fun looking at where they flip the switch between the present story and the the past story. And the girl in the book, it's about half and half, really, that it's not a minor past story and a major present story. In fact, it raises the question, which of those two stories is the more prominent or important? It's a little bit like you have two lovers in a love story, Mm. and one of them has to be the protagonist, right? Well, one of the stories of these two, past and present, has to be the main story. And I mean, it's not a hard question to answer. We open in the present, we close in the present, Mm -hmm. and the global crisis and climax are in the present story. So it's clearly the present story, but it is balanced in terms of screen time. Yeah, it really is. When you think about the big meta why of the girl in the book and stories like that, it's kind of like we all have our version of that past. Hopefully it's not as awful. You know, we all have something like that. It's like, okay, well, what are you going to do with it now? How are you going to take your power back in the present? And so I think that makes sense just in terms of offering a sort of prescriptive tale for a viewer to go through. We've, we've all been disillusioned by all kinds of garbage. So now what? Right. But that raises an issue that I was thinking about in this story is of these two stories, you could make a pretty solid argument that the past story is the more compelling of the two, mm-hmm. partly because it's, you know, it's it's shocking. It's an innocent teen. She's being groomed and abused by an older man right under the eyes of her parents, right? right. Who seem to support the whole thing. And then he abandons her and leaves her traumatized. I mean, that's a pretty compelling right. story. Now, on the other hand, the present story is about a dysfunctional young woman wrestling with writer's block and trauma. It's kind of gray, dreary is the word I keep coming up with. 
Now, that's not a worthless story, not by any means, but it is a little more difficult to empathize with adult Alice than it is with young Alice. But only by weaving that past story and that present story together does Alice's real internal arc come out and work. She has to overcome her beliefs about what happened in the past in order to move forward in the present. So we have to see that past to understand the beliefs that she's overcoming. If you're not telling a story about past trauma, you might use a flashback to explain your protagonist's difficulty at certain crisis points in the present or justify bad climactic decisions. I mean, you can still use them, but you would pick maybe different ways of building the flashbacks in. As I say, you've got to figure out what points of the past story are the most important and then build your present day scenes to sort of exploit the opportunity to bring in that past as as a flashback. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in something like A Man Called Uva, his backstory was so, it was so much of his life, right? When he was a kid, you know, his mom and his dad, and then meeting his wife and losing his wife. I mean, they had a huge story in the past. And it's just interesting to me, looking at these three stories, A Man Called Uva, Fundamentals of Caring, and The Girl in the Book, how much time is covered in that past story? I don't know. There's a lot to choose from. And making those decisions is interesting, like how to know what to show and what to leave out. Yeah. In Fundamentals of Caring, it's one minute in the guy's past. In uh, The Girl in the Book, it's maybe a few months mm-hmm. of her 15th year, 16th year, something like that. And of course, Man Called Uva, like you say, his current present in the story is just like a few months or maybe a year or something. I can't remember exactly, but we're looking back at 30, 40 years of right. his history. is beautifully done. Beautiful story. Yes. It's fascinating to me to, to look at the variation that's there and then it really seems like you just got to step back and ask yourself, what is the story that you're really trying to tell and why? You know, the heart. What's the heart of why are you attracted to the story? What do you want the reader to experience and take away from it? And then what is the best way, you know, the best events to show the reader so they can experience that? What order? It's just so interesting. The key thing that we've both discovered in this little exploration today is that it's critical to have a full narrative arc in both stories, past and present, if you're going to use flashbacks like this. I think without that, and we saw this happen in like The Spy Who Dumped Me, the flashbacks were just a sprinkling in of exposition that the writers felt like the viewer needed to know. And there's almost always a better way to do that than by using an actual flashback. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. So that covers it for today. Anne and I will be back at a later date with part three of The Power of Past and Present. And we're going to look at stories with two parallel timelines that never directly meet. So stay tuned for that. If you're interested in connecting with me in a more interactive format, I wanted to invite you to join me for a live editing workshop each month absolutely free. Come with your latest writing pain point and together we'll workshop you to your next right step. The format is similar to a mastermind where you have the power of the group and our group brain think and together we will get you to your next right step. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in that, go to KimberKessler.com and you can sign up for my list. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-K-E-S-S-L-E-R.com. Sign up for my list and you'll receive a link to the next call session. I would love to see you there. I might be there myself. It sounds great. (laughs) Yeah, come over, Anne. In the meantime, over at pagesandplatforms.com, my colleagues Sue Campbell and Rochelle Ramirez and I are offering a range of great editing and marketing content for writers. 
So check us out at pagesandplatforms.com and be sure to subscribe to hear about our next in-depth course on improving your scene writing. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.